0: you will be faced with this decision, which is, do you choose to step across that line into a world where you don't know what's gonna happen and you don't know what the solutions look like? You don't know if there's a solution that's even possible. Um,
1: But if you succeed, the rewards will be tremendous. For the Millennial Way Show, I am Ismael Trevino. Welcome to a new podcast episode. (laughs) Our next guest is a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, a philanthropist, an artist, an author of The Innovation Stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Actually, he's the co-founder of The Square and served as the chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, his iconic car reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. Our next guest also founded Invisibly, an abysmished project to rewire the economics of online content. In 2016, he's a deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. It's a pleasure and an honor to have Jim McKelvey on our show today. Jim, thank you very much for being on The Millennial Way Show. Thank you, Ismail. It's a pleasure and an honor. Jim, uh, before we go and before we dive deep into your book, I would like to know um, where are you right now and how can you define your experience during this month of pandemic?
0: So I'm in uh, my office in St. Louis, Missouri. The only other person who's come into the office today was the cleaning lady. Uh, Her name is Felicia and her son just died of COVID. So it's a, it's a pretty sad day here. Um, uh, and you know, the U S is having a lot of problems with this pandemic, uh, largely because I think people have stopped communicating about what, you you know, what science is. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been kind of a rough week uh, for me, um, but uh, yeah, I'm in my office in St. Louis, Missouri.
1: Wow! Wow! My, well, my condolences uh, for, for for your team for what happened, and and of course this is a this is a serious situation that not everybody is taking actually that serious. So, so uh, we really send you a, a message of support. Um, and let's move, moving on, Jim, a little bit about well the reason of today's interview and having the, such opportunity to have you today with. With our audience, not only in the US, but in Latin America and all the different countries in the region that are watching you right now. Um, I would like to go a little bit into your, in your story before before your book uh, how a glassblower and a massage registered therapist, I'm talking about Jack Dorothy, CEO of Twitter, came up with the idea of a square and, and built an empire of, of two, or three people at the very beginning to uh, more than 3,000 people worldwide, which is Square today.
0: Yes, so we have over 3000 employees. Um, What we
1: did uh,
0: was we discovered a problem that had not been solved before. And I don't think at the time we appreciated how unique the square solution was. But when we began, we were just trying to build a product um, that I wanted personally. And it turns out as a small business person, uh, I was like millions of others. Of course, there was no way of knowing that millions of people would want this product because there was no product for them. So there, you know, I, I guess I get into this in the book and that is this idea that if you're gonna build something truly new, uh, you don't get to do market studies in advance. You can't study a market that hasn't been created yet.
1: Let's talk about your book, The Innovation Stack. Um, what is exactly an innovation stack?
0: So an innovation stack is a term I coined to explain a phenomenon that happened at Square. So when my company was still a startup, this was back in 2014, Amazon attacked us. And when they did that, um, we were pretty sure that we were gonna be like all the other companies that Amazon attacked, and we were just gonna die. Um, Now, not to say that we gave up, but if you looked at the history of startups that have been attacked by Amazon, when Amazon copies your product and then they undercut your price, in every case that we'd found, the c- company had disappeared. And so we were very nervous, but what happened in Square's case was uh, we fought Amazon for about a year, and then Amazon gave up. Amazon got out of the business. As a matter of fact, when they gave when they got out of the business, they mailed um, one of our little Square readers here. I have one on me, usually carry one, yeah. But they mailed one of these little guys to, um, all of their soon-to-be former customers, and what happened was so amazing that I had to answer the question why, because I wasn't willing to just say, "Oh, we got lucky," or you know that we did anything, because we actually didn't do anything differently. Like we didn't have some strategy that you used against Amazon. We basically ignored them and just kept doing what we'd always been doing. We didn't match their price. We didn't. We didn't vary really at all. And so to beat Amazon this way, I thought, well, there must be something else at work. So that set me on a two-year quest to study other companies that, you know, throughout history have had similar situations, i.e. startups that had been attacked by much bigger companies and had survived. And what I found was that this has actually happened fairly frequently throughout history. And that when it happens, there's this thing called an innovation stack which is at the core of these companies. And the way one builds an innovation stack uh, is, I think, fundamentally different from the way most companies work. And so when I saw this, I uh, I got very excited. And then I got a little nervous because most of my research had been um, through history. So I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, reading of old manuscripts and I studied companies, you know, hundreds of years back and um, most of the people that I was studying have long since died. Um, And when I was writing the book, the, there were two people who were still alive, the founder of Ikea and the founder of Southwest Airlines. Um, uh, Compride who founded Ikea died as I was writing the book, but Herb Kelleher was still alive. So I went down and I met with Herb, who in my world is a legend. I mean, he he ran the most successful company in the United States for a solid decade. Southwest Airlines, for basically the time I was right out of college, was was the premier, not just the premier airline, but it was the premier company in, in the United States as far as you know the appreciation of its stock price. And so I went to Herb with all my research and I said, Herb, I think what happened to us at Square is the same thing that happened to you at Southwest Airlines. Do you see the parallels. And so Herb basically looked at my research and he said, he got very excited. He said, well, you've got to share this. He's like, you can't just sit on this thing you've got. You must, how are you going to share it with the world? And my um, my response was the book. So, uh, so in short, an innovation stack is this thing that gets created when you're not copying and when you can't copy and it's how you solve a problem uh, if you don't have somebody who solved it before you.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Jim, in, in that same order of ideas, how Square, while still a startup, as you mentioned, you guys beat Amazon, but what other companies can learn from it?
0: Well, uh, it, it, it's a very fundamental thing. And I talk about this a lot in the book. It's sort of the central idea of the book. And uh, here, I'll save you guys a bunch of reading. Um, the the thing we are best equipped to do as humans is copy. Uh, our DNA works that way. Our schools work that way. Our families work that way. Our companies work that way. We are very, very good when we have a model that works and we are, we need to replicate it. Um, we are actually very uncomfortable if we can't copy something. And yet most human progress is made by people who don't get to copy the thing that they're doing. You know, once you've figured it out, the rest of us can copy it. But if you're gonna be the person who figures it out, then a completely different set of rules apply. And um, I was surprised that, so I only speak English. Uh, My wife fortunately speaks six languages, but I'm sort of stuck with English, right? And when I went to write this book, Knowing Only English, I wanted to find a word to describe a business, but a business that wasn't copying. And it turns out there is no word in English for that. The word entrepreneur used to mean that, but today we use entrepreneur interchangeably with a business person. So if I start a coffee company, I'm an entrepreneur. Start an airline, I'm an entrepreneur. I start an accounting firm, I'm an entrepreneur. but that doesn't differentiate the entrepreneur from the business person, because they're interchangeable. Turns out, however, that the reason we have the word entrepreneur, which is, by the way, a terrible word. I mean, it's really long. It's hard to spell. It, you know, know—I—I I yes, it's a terrible, terrible word. But the reason we needed this terrible word is that 100 years ago, um, the economist Joseph Schumpeter was trying to explain this different type of behavior, that um entrepreneurs exhibited and he needed a word to describe them so that's how we got the word but then unfortunately through just sort of misuse we've lost it and i guess this is sort of the reason i wrote the book is because look i wanted to discuss what it's like to do things differently but when i actually tried to do that honestly i didn't even have the language to do it like i have if you read the book like i I start the first chapter and i say look We need to resurrect the ancient use of this word because like without its historical definition, I can't even finish this writing. So it's it's this thing that we never talk about, um, not because I don't think it's important, but because it's so foreign to us that we've we've lost the ability to talk about it. At least in English. I mean, you probably speak other languages, and hopefully, they, you got you have a word to differentiate. Uh, I know they do in Sweden, um, but where I've come from, businessmen and entrepreneurs are the same thing.
1: Yeah, well, actually, in Spanish it's different, and it's, we, we have the emprendedor, very different, which is entrepreneur, and, and empresario, which is which is different for the businessman. But uh, yeah, that's correct. We have, we have, we separate the the word and it's very, it's very interesting what you're uh, saying, Jim, because you mentioned copying and in the entrepreneurial world, um, that's another topic that that I understand is also in your book, that it says that why copying is a great place to start, but won't help you achieve transformational change.
0: Yes. So this is one of the central themes of the book. And that is... Look, I'm not saying that copying is bad. Uh, As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm in my office right now and I'm looking around and like everything in this room is a copy of something else. I mean, even the trees that made my desk and the chair that I'm sitting in and me, like I'm just copying my, I'm a copy of my parents, you know? Um, I literally everything in my environment here is not original. Everything you can, you know, I'm sitting on a chair, there've been chairs for millions of years, you know, there's a wall, you know, humans have put up walls. There's nothing original about this wall or the paint or the way it's constructed. Um, It's just, we figured out how to put up a wall, you know? And uh, the guy who figured out how to put up the wall had a lot of people copy him. And so now we have walls. So copying is a great way to solve a problem that's already been solved. And in your life, most of the things that you will Find our problems that others have solved. So you go out to YouTube or you take a course or you go to school or you you know you can somehow learn how to do that. Great. But what if we forget all the solved problems and only look at the world of problems that have not been solved? And then what you know, what are your tools? And the answer is unfortunately you don't know how to behave in that world. You don't know when to do what. And I I made so many mistakes for so many years applying the tools of business to the world of entrepreneurs. In other words, I would do the things that my friends were doing who were running successful businesses and I would take those same tools and I would apply them to my circumstances and they wouldn't work. Um, or sometimes even worse, I take things that worked in the entrepreneurial world, and I would bring them back into businesses that I owned and I'd blow them up too. So it's really funny because there's, there's, it's almost like two sets of rules and one set we've never discussed. So that's what my book's about.
1: And you also mentioned something about the difference between um, an, an, an entrepreneur and entrepreneurial skills. Mentioned that entrepreneur, entrepreneurs are at some point kind of rare, but entrepreneurial skills sets are not. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit on that?
0: So this is a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned that um, most interviewers never ask me that, but it's a great point. And that is, I think we make a couple of mistakes in talking about innovation and entrepreneurship. The first is that we tend to make our entrepreneurs seem like heroes. We make them seem like they're these super intelligent or super energetic or rich or smart or young or old, or like whatever sort of superlative we apply to them that separates them from us. And I think that's a huge mistake because in my research and, and in my life, like these are not super special people. I mean, they're special in the sense that when they were given the chance to do something new, they didn't quit. But with the exception of that, they didn't have any sort of superhero powers. And unfortunately it's very easy once you've been successful and they hand you the microphone and say, well, you know, you're worth billions of dollars and your companies are super successful. You know, you tend to tell your hero story. Oh, I did this and I'm great. And you know, like all that crap. Um, At least according to my research, that's not how it goes. Most of the people that I've seen who are incredibly successful, they don't have different qualities. What they have is they have a, they had a different path. They, they ended up usually accidentally on an entrepreneurial path. And when I say accidentally, I mean that they were trying to copy something that worked but they couldn't for some weird reason. And because they were prevented from copying, they had to invent these tools that the entrepreneur uses. And I think it's a little bit easier to use those tools if you kind of know they're required. But in fact, none of the people who I studied had my book. So uh, and I didn't have my book when I was writing. As a matter of fact, I didn't even sort of figure out what had happened to me until, you know, two years after it happened. Um, So I don't like the hero story. And I don't like the idea that, you know, we put these people on pedestals. I would much rather tell the average person, look, if you're if you're sort of a normally wired human, you know, deep, deep down in your behavior set is this instinct to survive. And when your survival instinct kicks in, that's actually very similar to the behavior you will need uh, when you're building new things and innovating.
1: And when you're talking about these survival skills, it comes to my mind, uh, concepts like, for example, I don't know, discipline, uh, commitment, Patience, uh, work, uh, work hard, work, work smart, and I know also that you can talk a little bit about how commitment can be a great substitute for qualification. Because I hear, I think in one of one of our inter- uh, your interviews, the story about a, a 74-year-old uh, person that studied for free in your in your uh, company, Lunch Code. Yeah, was working in Mastercard. How is that? Yeah.
0: So actually I'm, I'm wearing the launch code t-shirt today. I'll, uh, you know, yeah. cool. that's the rocket. Um, so this is a nonprofit that I started, uh, seven years ago. And, um, we train people for free to become programmers and you think, okay, no big deal. But it turns out it is a big deal because uh, we train people and we let anybody in the door. So we don't care what you look like, what your age is or anything. And, um, and we get a lot of sort of underrepresented groups. We get a lot of, uh, we got a lot of people who are black, we got a lot of people who are female, we got a lot of people who are you know, over 30. Um, and, and these are groups that are typically not stereotypical programmers. But if you actually look at the hiring biases of programs, it's the, 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 the number one problem is not race and it's not age and it's not gender, uh, it's not a, race and it's not gender, it's actually age. The age bias in programming is the is the single biggest problem. And um, we got a guy who was 74 years old, uh, a job, and as a programmer. And you think about that, uh, most people when they're 74 are retiring as opposed to starting a new career. But this guy was very good and he's now working at MasterCard. And um, it's, it's interesting because, the way Code was created was, we built an innovation stack at LaunchCode that allowed us to take people who you would not think of as being able to get programming jobs, and we got them programming jobs. And uh, we do things a little differently, but it's working great. And uh, it's actually one of the more meaningful things that I've been involved with in the last few years.
1: That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I want to go back to, to, to the Square story. and. and... I would like to ask you, uh, Jim, why sacrificing functionality in favor of beauty and simplicity helps square, build trust, and reach a mass audience?
0: Oh, yeah. So you're talking about sacrificing functionality. So um, I'm going to grab a credit card here so I can... Uh, well, actually, I'm not going to grab a credit card here because last time I did it, I showed my credit card to a million people. <laughs> that was probably not too smart. So I'm going I'm to use my uh, New York Metro card here
1: yeah, it's better
0: um, in Manhattan. <laughs> Okay, so the square, the original square reader, which I was the guy that designed this, and um, you'll notice it's it's very narrow. And and if it's reading a mag stripe, so this black thing here is a mag stripe and you, you you swipe it through like that. But because the reader is narrow, the card tends to wobble. And when it wobbles, it screws up the read and there's nothing you can do about that. And I knew this when I was building the thing and I actually built two versions. I built this one, which is one we ship, And I built one that was about two and a half times as long. And the two and a half times as long one, um, there, was no, there was no wobble. The card went through very smoothly. Um, but we never shipped that one because it turns out the big one was boring. Like people would see it and they would think, oh, you just read a credit card. Um, but if I would read their credit card with something that was this small, which was the smallest credit card reader in the world, they got really interested. They 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 stopped what they were doing and just for a second paid attention. And during that time, we had the ability to get people to notice that there was this new thing called Square and that maybe it was something that they'd like to use. And it's it's funny, one of the problems I discussed in the book, and, and a problem that you would not think is as prevalent as it is, unless you've unless you've invented something that's new. It is amazingly difficult to get the world to notice that that something is different. Almost in every case, people will see something different and they will immediately sort of distort it into something they already understand and then stop paying attention, you know? So literally if I invented a flying car, okay? And I was going down the street and then all of a sudden I just elevated 10 feet, went over some traffic, went back down. Like if I drove that around the streets, for a month half the people who saw the flying car would not notice it they just like it's amazing to see how how people fail to notice things that are new um and one of the great tricks to get them to notice is to do something to shock them out of their you know normal behavior and and the reason you don't notice the flying car is cuz you're not looking for a flying car you know you're you're listening to your music or you're talking to somebody or you're driving or you're you know, hungry or you're cold or your foot itches or, you know, like there's some other thing that your attention's on and there's a flying car that drives right by you and nobody sees it. So by making the square reader smaller than it needed to be, um, we got people's attention and therefore we could tell them about our new company.
1: Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, Jim, I also understand that that, um, I don't know how close you were to Steve Jobs, but I know that you you met him and you and you had the, the opportunity to, to to know him. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about about how how you can define uh, the Steve Jobs that you met or that you knew? So,
0: so it was funny because um, one of the things we were doing, we were um, connecting our Square Reader uh, not through the dock connector but through the microphone port. So it plugged in there. And this was a total violation of everything that Apple wanted to do with the iPhones. Remember, this was, this was the iPhone two. This was back. Steve jobs was still really in charge of the company, although he was very ill and we were really, um, sort of violating his device, uh, and the rules. And the result of this was we, we were afraid that Apple was going to kick us out of the, ecosystem. And if Apple, if Apple kicked us out, we were dead. Like if Apple banned us from the iTunes store or anything like square, wouldn't be here today. So, um, what happened was, um, our plan was to basically show Steve the product and then hope that he liked it. And if Steve liked it, you know, he would keep the rest of Apple's lawyers away, you know? Uh, and that's actually not what happened. What happened was, um, uh, we got a meeting with Steve and I was very nervous because I'm the guy that has to build the hardware. So Jack was doing software. I was doing the hardware. So, um, and, and if you know anything about Steve jobs, he was a design fanatic. And and like when, you know, when Bill Gates showed him like the original Microsoft Zune jobs, wouldn't touch it. He was like, Oh, that's too ugly for me to even touch, you know? And, and here I got to put a piece of hardware in this guy's hands. And I was freaked out. So, um, I believe in copying and I believe in copying great people. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just copy Steve. Like, So I went into the Apple store and I started looking around at all the stuff that Apple was selling and it was all made out of aluminum. like you know, computers and the monitors and I was like, oh, okay, Steve likes aluminum, right? So I thought I'd make something out of aluminum and I made uh, the original square reader out of a block of solid aluminum and uh, got it working. And then uh, I handed it to Jack to do the test uh, because Jack was the one who was going to fly out and meet with Steve. Um, And, uh, you know, I handed it to Jack and I, you know, I was like, here, look, works perfectly. And then Jack took it and he tried it and it didn't work. He gave it back to me and I was like, no, no, look, it's, it works great. You know, and then I handed it back to Jack and Jack would, no, it doesn't work, Jim. And we, we went back and forth like this. What turned out happening is because the, the the reader would rotate in the microphone. Port. And, and this rotation sort of messes you up unless you're used to it. Now, I'm used to it, so I just swipe like that. I don't touch the reader. But Jack, because he was a little less familiar with it, would pinch it with his fingers. And he'd hold it like that. And when he held it, aluminum's electrical Conductor, and by just doing this, the reader would um, it would pick up his heartbeat. So I made a basically not a card reader, but a cardiac reader. Um, so uh, we discovered this problem, and um, I immediately switched to plastic. But but it it it, it, it turns out uh, Ishmael, the 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 demo with Steve never happened. Um, we ended up. We were scheduled for it, and then Steve got it. Got ill. He he was basically dying, and um, we uh, we never got to meet with Steve. Um, neither Jack nor I ever met him. Um, we we were prepared to, and he was prepared to, and the whole thing got canceled. Um, but but it was interesting because I think that still may have saved us because the Apple management was very aware of. Everyone that Steve was taking meetings with, because he wasn't taking many meetings. So if Steve met with you, that meant there was something important about your company. And just the fact that we were on his calendar probably kept the lawyers off our ass.
1: Wow. Well, actually, there's there, there's a clear example of the innovation stack that you founded. That, that aluminium was, you know, like another problem to solve, and through the, the whole chain. Uh, Jim, um, also you talk about the 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 concept of disruption and why it's time to disrupt disruption?
0: Yes. So like if I'm going to spend an hour or five hours reading a book, um, first of all, I don't want to hear anything that I've already heard. Uh, And better if I've heard something that I kind of believe debunked. In other words, if you show me a belief that I have and you can tell me why it's wrong, I think that's really valuable. Um, And I believe one of the more commonly held beliefs, uh, at least in Silicon Valley, is that startups should be disruptive. that companies who are really going to be successful have to destroy other industries. Uh, uh, It turns out that is not the results of my research. When I researched these companies who built multi, multi multi-billion dollar empires, in some cases, trillion-dollar empires. Uh, at the core of each one of them was an innovation stack, but the growth didn't come at the expense of competitors. It came from the creation of a completely new market. So, um, so, so, and actually collected statistics on this because you say, okay, well, this is anecdotal, but it turns out that in Square's case, we didn't actually cause any other companies to go out of business. Maybe a couple you know, a couple of the worst ones, but we made the entire industry grow. And, you know, PayPal, which has largely been around since Square, like we didn't put PayPal out of business. We didn't disrupt PayPal. PayPal's 10 times the size they were when we started. Um, What we've done is we've essentially created a whole new industry. Uh, What Southwest Airlines did was not put the other carriers out of business. What they did was they grew the number of people who were traveling on airlines. You know, before Southwest, only rich people and business people were flying, and after Southwest, you know, normal people could take airplane rides. And and I saw this again and again, and I thought, well, wait a second, we we so worship disruption in Silicon Valley, and it's really the wrong thing to be looking at for two reasons. One, um, it's kind of a waste of time. Like if you think disrupting something is a way to create value, no, you can actually disrupt something and create no value. And I'd, I'd use you know, what's happening to newspapers and and journalism right now. Like we're destroying journalism through a broken ad model, Um, but it's not like that's creating value somewhere else. You know, we're just becoming collectively stupider as a population, Um, or perhaps I should say less informed. Um, But the second problem, and this is probably a bigger problem, is if you're looking at something to disrupt, you will spend too much time with your eyes pointed backwards. Like if I want to disrupt something, well, I say, well, what am I gonna disrupt? And I look at the thing that I'm trying to disrupt, and I spend time getting energy and ideas, because you know, humans are copying machines. And I'm I start to start to think like the people I'm disrupting, and I start to, you know, behave like the people I'm disrupting. That's the wrong place to look. Like if you're doing innovation, if you're doing something new you don't want to look at anybody. And this is this is actually another interesting fact. Um, the people who start these innovative companies, the ones that literally create new markets, none of them have expertise in the area where they're disrupting. So, I mean, I was a glassblower. I've got a degree in economics and I've got a degree in computer engineering. Okay, I don't have any finance background. I don't know anything about payments. I don't know anything about banking. Like, like but I started Square. Jack was a massage therapist and a computer programmer, okay? He didn't know anything about credit cards. Like he had one, but like, it wasn't as if we brought any industry expertise into the world. And, and again, this was this was a 100% true pattern. Like all the companies that I studied, their entrepreneurs were not experienced in the world that they were transacting in. And, and you think about that and it's like, well, wow. why, would, why would a total lack of expertise be an advantage? Because like if, you, like if it was even neutral, you'd see some instance of, uh, of expertise, but there was zero instance of expertise. And, and I think the reason for that is if you're an expert, you are so steeped in the ways these problems have traditionally been solved. You can't even think that there's another solution. And a lot of the stuff we did at Square flat out was illegal, like in the beginning. Like we broke some laws and we we did a lot of stuff that they just said, well, you can't do that, you can't do that. But it wasn't these were of course we could do it. We just had to get the laws changed, or we had to get, you know, somebody to approve something. But I think if we'd been too in the business, we wouldn't have had that advantage. And um, and, and this is and this is one of those things where I say, look, if you, if, you, if you want to copy, become an expert, okay? If you want to innovate, just go.
1: That's amazing, that's amazing. Kim, last question before we, we let you go, and we really, really appreciate your time. Uh, what would be your best advice for the new generations of entrepreneurs that are watching you right now uh, that might help them to succeed? Besides reading your book. Well, okay. So,
0: understand that there is going to be a line, and that you are you live almost your entire life on one side of that line, and that line is the difference. It's 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 where things where new things happen, and the rest of your life you spend copying. Okay, for good reason. We copy for good reason, but a couple of times in your life, you are going to find yourself on that line. It's not gonna happen every week. It's probably not gonna happen every year. It'll be a few times in your life. You will find yourself for whatever reason up against the edge of what humanity has solved. Okay, you just can't go to YouTube and figure it out, right? You can't call up an expert and have your problem go away. And at that moment, you will be faced with this decision, which is, do you choose to step across that line into a world where You don't know what's gonna happen. And you don't know what the solutions look like. You don't know if there's a solution that's even possible. Um, But if you succeed, the rewards will be tremendous and the impact will be tremendous. Or do you step back and say, no, no, I'm not gonna do that. Um, And the reason I wrote the book is because I have a friend who every time I think of her, I get get a little bit choked up because she's so brilliant. And she's so, I mean, any, any, any possible sort of good word you can stick on this lady is appropriate. She's brilliant. Uh, She's got a master's degree from probably one of the best universities in the world. Um, uh, Tremendous perseverance, tremendous dedication, tremendous heart. Uh, highly ethical, just the, all these superlatives. But when she finds a problem that she's never, that, that, that she can't copy the solution, she stops and she says, I can't do this because I'm not qualified. Like I'm not qualified to do this. And my message is look, the first time humanity does anything, it will be done by an unqualified person. Right, the Wright brothers. They flew their first airplane. Were either of them qualified to be a pilot? No. It, it's not that they could be. Now, it, it's funny because like I'm, I'm literally studying, right, my piloting skills. Right, I've been flying for ten years, and I still say I'm a pilot. I'm qualified. I pass all these tests. You know, I'm, I'm a better pilot than the Wright brothers were oh, but that's because I've had nearly a century of people to copy from and all this infrastructure. If you're gonna do something the first time, you're gonna be unqualified and you're gonna feel weird. And there is a set of rules when you're in that world that I want people to know. And that's why I want. That's why I wrote the book. And that's why I wanted to spread the word that, look, you don't always have to settle for what's already been done. Jim
1: McElweave. Do you- co-founder of Square CEO, entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, artist, and author of the innovation stack. Thank you, thank you very much for being today on The Millennial Way Show. We really appreciate it. Ishmael, what a pleasure. Thanks again. Have a good one. Thank you. Good bye-bye. This episode of The Millennial Way Show was brought to you by Unify Miami. This interview You can find it in all our digital platforms, in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and also now in Spotify. And remember, The Millennial Way Show, empowering the new generations.